Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 193, Clement V. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So as perhaps you were able to guess from last week, today's Pope was born in France. And since last episode, we ended with the Holy See capitulating to the King of France, Philip the Fair, in this conflict that's been going on for some time now, the fact that our Pope today is of French origin tells us a lot off the bat about how that conflict is going. His name was Bertrand de Gaut. His parents were Ida de Blancfort and Berard de Gaut. They were minor French nobles. Bertrand was born in Villadraut, a small town in southwestern France. We don't know when he was born, probably sometime around the 1260s. His uncle was a bishop, and since he was one of 12 children and not the eldest, it's a pretty good bet that young Bertrand would be destined for a church career from a young age. And indeed, two of his brothers alongside him went on to become clerics, including his brother Berard, who was made a cardinal by Pope St. Celestine V. Bertrand was active in church circles at an early, early age. Now, at this point in church history, it was common for nobles in the church to be given several different offices. They wouldn't actually live in those areas or serve there, and oftentimes they were too young to really be exercising them. They were just giving them the titles and, most importantly, the revenue, and it was the case with Bertrand as well. The area of France where Bertrand grew up, Gascony, was at the time under the jurisdiction of the King of England. And so there's some records of Bertrand gaining titles and participating in English politics for a time. Now, this is particularly important because it means that Bertrand wasn't completely a product of a purely French way of living. He wasn't a vassal directly of the King of France. And he would serve in various functions in Gascony for the King of England, even while at the same time holding other positions in the church in the French part of French uh, of France. And this will matter a lot, as I said, going forward. In July of 1289, Bertrand's brother Berard was named the Archbishop of Lyon, the primatial see of France, and a really big deal. And he recruited his younger brother to serve as the vicar general for the diocese. This was a big break for him. And an even bigger break came when his brother was named a cardinal by St. Celestine V. This was Bertrand's way of getting his name recognized by the Pope and by the important cardinals in Rome. And he was put to work by the Pope pretty early on. Knowing his place in the politics of Francis straddling the English and French divide, St. Celestine sent him on a diplomatic mission to try and negotiate a peace between the kings of France and England. But he didn't complete his mission because only a little while uh, after that, the new pope, Boniface VIII, appointed him the Bishop of Comines in Gascony on March 28, 1295. The next we hear of Bertrand is in 1299 when he was appointed the Archbishop of Bordeaux, which was the most important church position in the English part of France. Now, what this meant practically was Bertrand had to be very careful about what he said and did because of the reality they straddled these two political and religious divides. Now, on the one hand, he had to negotiate between the King of France and the King of England. He had been doing that for some time and was pretty well practiced in it. He was careful what he said. He acknowledged King Philip the Fair of France, but he also kept his distance. And because of that, the second divide was the religious divide when the conflict came up between Philip the Fair and Boniface VIII. Bertrand played it as cool as he could. He knew he shouldn't take a side one way or another. He went to the council that condemned Boniface in France in 1302, but later that year he snuck across the Alps in disguise and went to the council in Rome, which condemned King Philip. But despite that, no one really knew where he stood, and that was good for him politically. 
When Pope Benedict XI died in 1304, the College of Councils was as divided as it ever was. There were those who supported still Pope Boniface against King Philip and wanted to hold the French in contempt. There were those who were supporters of the two Colonna cardinals who had been stripped of the cardinalatial title and dignity by Pope Boniface for helping to stoke the infamous attack at Agnani, which we heard about two episodes ago. And that side was generally pro-French. The voting was about 10 to 6, which meant a deadlock, and it was a deadlock that lasted for months. They needed a compromise, someone who could be approved by both sides, who wasn't seen to be a firm member of either camp, but there wasn't anyone like that among the cardinals. Now, eventually, Cardinal Matteo Rosso Orsini, who was the leader of the Italian faction and a member of the famous Orsini family, suggested Bertrand. I mean, he, he snuck across the Alps in disguise under the nose of King Philip and participated in a council that condemned him. So he must be on the Italian side, right? And at the same time, he's French, so maybe that will help appease the French side. Now, the French cardinals said, well, well that doesn't sound good to us. He does seem to be pro-Italian, so no. And their faction was led by a cardinal named Napoleone Orsini, who, if you recognize the last name, was the nephew of Cardinal Matteo Rosso Orsini. But he hated his uncle's guts. But he eventually had second thoughts. He started wondering, who is this guy they're suggesting? So Cardinal Napoleone did something that none of the other cardinals had thought to do, which was some secret opposition research. And he discovered that while Bertrand had gone to Rome, he was actually much more on the French side than the Italian. And the cardinal asked King Philip, what do you think? King Philip expressed a great deal of support of electing Bertrand Pope, so Cardinal Napoleone worked behind the scenes and made it happen, saying ostensibly that he was reconciling with his uncle and that Bertrand would make a great compromise candidate and not be on either side, etc., etc. But in the end, he thought he was going to be pro-French. On June 5, 1305, Archbishop Bertrand de Gaulle was elected the Pope. Now, Bertrand was in Gascony when he heard the news on June 19th. He accepted and took the name Clement V, and he began to make plans for his coronation. Now, his first plan was to be installed and crowned pope uh, at the French city of Vienne, which technically did not fall under the jurisdiction of the King of France, but rather the jurisdiction of the Holy Roman Empire. He then said that after he was crowned there, he would go directly to Italy, but it was not to be. King Philip wanted the coronation closer to home, and he twisted Clement's arm to have it happen in French territory in Lyon. The cardinals hurried to Lyon, and Pope Clement was crowned there on November 14, 1305. And King Philip the Fair was there. And it was pretty clear that from the start, he's going to be controlling this papacy. And there were bad omens there from the start, too. On his procession to the cathedral for the crowning, a crowd pushed its way onto a very precarious wall, which then gave out under their weight and killed several and threw the pope from his horse. After King Philip met with Pope Clement, a couple things happened. Clement canceled his trip to Italy completely and decided to remain, at least for the time, in France. After some stays around in different areas, the Pope settled in the town of Avignon in 1309, which at that time, though now in southern France, was the territory of the Kingdom of Naples. And this is thus officially the beginning of what has been called in history the Avignon Papacy. The papacy is not going to return to Rome for about 70 years, and even then, it's going to be the occasion of tremendous conflict and division in the church. We'll get there in a couple of episodes, but for the next five or six episodes, the Pope is stuck firmly in Avignon, right under the nose and under the control of the King of France, who Pope Clement pleased greatly a month after his election by creating 10 new cardinals, all French except for one Englishman. And he reinstated the two Colonna cardinals on top of that. And with that, the College of Cardinals has become decidedly pro-French. 
Now, the Pope did this in part because at the same time, King Philip wanted him to condemn Pope Boniface as a heretic and to disinter his body and cast his bones to the winds. Now, even Pope Clement didn't want to do this. It would be a horrible look for the papacy and would clearly signal a, a lack of independence, which even though he was pro-French, he knew he needed. And so he tried to appease the king by giving him this concession of lots of French cardinals uh, to maybe get him to back down, but it wouldn't work. King Philip kept pressing. He had this issue stuck in his craw, and he tried to get his way. But before we tell that story, we have to tell another story, which is another thing that King Philip wanted, the destruction of the Knights Templar. Now, the Knights Templar, if you remember, were a crusading order of warrior monks founded in the 11th century to defend pilgrims in the Holy Land and to support the crusader, crusader kingdoms there against the attacks of various Muslim rulers. The Knights Templar had grown significantly. They had obtained significant wealth and prestige over the centuries. And when you make money and you get power and you get dispensations and privileges, especially from the papacy, that makes other rulers start to dislike you especially kings in whose territory you operate because you're not accountable to them. You've been given all this stuff. And then what inevitably happens to a religious order when it gets prosperity is its initial, initial discipline and fervor starts to slacken. And you start to get a bad reputation with the average person in the pews. The historian uh, Guillaume Molat describes how common people saw the Templars at the time. He writes, They were sent to be given to drunkenness. The saying to drink like a Templar was already in use. The old German word Tempelhaus meant a house of ill fame. Guardroom gossip was repeated, such as the story of the knight who bragged, quote, it is of no consequence to deny Jesus. In my country, he is denied a hundred times for the sake of one flea, end quote. Such talk as this roused all kind of suspicion against the orthodoxy of the order. Now, why King Philip specifically hated the Templars is uncertain. Malat writes that the Templars had actually backed him in his fight with Pope Boniface VIII, but by 1307, the king had changed his mind and started lobbying the pope to suppress the order entirely. This pressure was intimately linked with Philip's continued desire to have a trial or a council in which Boniface VIII was formally condemned. He pushed on both fronts repeatedly, both in person in 1307 when he went to visit the French city of Poitiers, where Clement was, and by several letters. Clement, unconvinced but bowing to the pressure, arranged to have the Templars investigated and at the same time to begin the process for holding some sort of counsel about the deceased Pope Boniface. But he wasn't moving quickly enough for the king, and that was by design. So on Friday the 13th, October 13th, 1307, through an incredibly coordinated secret action against the, uh, across the entire kingdom of France, every single Templar knight was arrested at once. The Pope protested, but with little effect. Now, in his letter to the king, he didn't say that he thought the Templars were innocent, but he just said that the king shouldn't have arrested them since they were subject to the church. But his opinion would change, and he would give in to the king even more once he heard the results of the arrest. The king's officers basically tortured the knights and said that if they just confessed, they would receive a pardon. If not, death. So they confessed. Only four of the hundred or so did not confess. And the confessions were forwarded to Pope Clement, who then sent a letter to all the princes of Europe saying that they should probably confiscate the property of the Templars. But then in 1308, the leaders of the Templars recanted their confessions, and the Pope said, hang on, I need to investigate this personally. But with continued pressure from the king, Clement eventually came around to seeing them as guilty. Now, at the same time, the pressure had been building to put Pope Boniface on trial, something, as I said, the Pope really didn't want to do. He hadn't managed to get the king to drop it, but he did manage to slow down the proceedings even more to buy more time. In the meantime, several cardinals tried to negotiate with the king to try and get him to stop his pressure. And eventually, it appears a tacit deal was struck. Clement would call an ecumenical council at Vienne, 
to deal with the Templars if Philip would lay off Pope Boniface. Clement also fully acquitted Philip and those who participated in the storming of Vagnani and annulled all the decrees of Pope Boniface, which had sparked the entire affair in the first place. So he'd basically given in on every single front except for this thing about Pope Boniface. So a council was called at Vienne for 1310. Now, before the council, a smaller local council in Sens considered the case of some of the Templars in that area who had recanted their confessions. On May 11th, 1310, the provincial council officially declared them heretics and put them to death by burning them at the stake. Molat gives us the testimony of one of the knights who survived the incident, who wrote, Yesterday when I saw 54 of my brethren going in carts to the take because they would not confess to the sins imputed to us, I thought I should never be able to withstand the fear of the fire. I know in my heart that I would confess to anything. I would confess that I had killed God if they asked me. The Council of Vienne, which is the 16th ecumenical council, was convened in October of 1311. While the council at first wanted to give the Templars a fair hearing, King Philip eventually put a stop to that. He showed up in Vienne in March of 1320 and in effect forced Clement to abolish the Knights Templar and confiscate fully their property. He said that unless the Templars were found guilty, he would start back up the trial of Pope Boniface. Now that was enough to finally move the council and find the Templars guilty. And at the same time, Pope Clement canonized Pope Celestine V as a way to appease the king even more, since Celestine was seen to be anti-Boniface. Now with the Templars officially condemned, Christian kings were encouraged to act swiftly. Naturally, most other kings who had Templars in their territory moved quickly to confiscate the wealth found in their region. It's hard really to turn down free money like that. Malot makes the point that it was hard to definitely say if the temples were guilty of the crimes they were accused of. The archaeological evidence points to their innocence. And if that was the case, this really was a shameful episode in the history of the church. The Council of Vienne did have a more positive result, which was the addition of a series of decrees on the Code of Can Law, which did have some reforming aspects to them, but other than that, it was kind of a wash. Now, there is more that could be said about Clement V. There's a pretty disastrous episode with the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII. He invaded Rome, he enmeshed himself in Italian politics, he was eventually crowned Holy Roman Emperor, and then he died not long afterwards. But believe it or not, in this French-dominated papacy, this story really isn't that important. Italy was just a mess, and the Colonnas were fighting the Orsinis, and everyone was getting involved in everyone else's business, and it was a total disaster. Clement V was a sick man for most of his papacy. There were moments when many thought he would die pretty early on. And he likewise wasn't a very good judge of character, and he was easily manipulated. His lack of discipline, his blatant nepotism, saw five members of his family made cardinals. It all led to disorder and corruption in the papal court. By the end of the Council of Vienne, his disease had gotten much worse, and on April 20, 1314, he died in the town of Rocamare. It does seem that he was sorry on his deathbed for how the Templars were treated, but this doesn't help cover what really was a terrible and disastrous papacy. During his tenure, he had totally given in to the King of France. He'd moved the papal court in a semi-permanent way to Avignon and left behind a legacy of capitulation and chaos. And just as his papacy started out with a bad omen, his uh, papacy ended with a bad omen. As his corpse was being laid out for burial, the candles surrounding it fell on top and burned his body completely. The remains were then brought to his family's land in the town of Uzetste in Gascony, where he was buried. He was succeeded by another French pope, Pope John XXII, and we'll talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.